Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right. Well, we are going to be picking up after last week's study of 1 Peter with... Second Peter, surprisingly, this week. <laughs> and uh, we're also going to be throwing in um, a study, or at least an overview. I, mean, I don't know if I'd call any of these deep studies, but sure. uh, we will be talking about the letter from Jude as well, which goes really closely with Second Peter. So we've included those on the same episode today. And um, just kind of resetting the background, we're talking about the Apostle Peter in both of these letters. And we talked a little bit last week about how interesting it is to match up events from the life of Peter with the things in these letters. And what's interesting about Second Peter in particular is that Peter tells us in chapter 1 that this is the very end of his life, that Jesus has made clear to him that he's about to die. Um, in Second Peter 1.14, he says, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Um, and I, make, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So it's very interesting to, to think about this similar to Second Timothy. We talked about how Paul knew at the end of that letter, his time was near. He's being poured out as a drink offering. He's run the race. He's finished the course. He's fought the fight. And Peter, this is kind of his farewell address, like Second Timothy was for Paul. And so it's really notable that we have kind of two farewell addresses from very prominent figures in the early church in Second Timothy and now in Second Peter. Yes, and Peter, we talked about it in the the first Peter episode. He served as a shepherd, um, probably at the church in Jerusalem, as well as obviously being an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he has lived a a full life, a long life of service to God's people, and he leaves us this beautiful letter um, that's written to the same audience as 1 Peter. um, In 2 Peter 3, 1, it says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere uh, mind by way of reminder and so that makes sense there was first peter now there's second peter so same audience um these these five regions of, of modern day turkey are in mind where there was a huge theme in the first letter of suffering and needing endurance and the surety of hope some of those ideas will carry over into second peter but with more of a focus on false teaching that is one of the biggest I don't know, themes, you, if you will, in the book of Second Peter, where he's reminding them that false teachers will arise, and we'll get into that in, in chapter 2. Yeah, and that just, that just stands out to me, because I, I don't know, when someone is kind of on their deathbed, so to speak, the things that they choose to talk about are not the peripheral things. They're not talking about the weather. They're not talking about, you know, the stock market. They're talking about the things that are nearest to their hearts, and Peter loves these brethren that he's writing to, these Christians who are scattered abroad. And in First Peter, he talked to them a lot about suffering and how to make it through suffering. Don't let suffering kill your faith. But here he talks a lot more about, in his final letter, about false teaching and just how sinister it is, just how easily we can be deceived. 
And that's really important because I don't know about you. Like there's times where I, I might feel more hesitant to talk about false teaching and all oh, that's negative and all this. But it's like Peter's like, no, dude, like before I go, before I go, you need to watch out for this. And I just think that makes a big impression when you think about the theme of these last words of Peter, um, that he found false teaching an important enough theme to devote the lion's share of this letter to that. And it is it is impressive. Nearly every book in the New Testament has something to say about false teaching, how to beware of it, how to deal with it, or some false teacher that has crept in. And the New Testament writers have a lot to say about that because we will battle with that the rest of our lives. And as you look over the course of history, you know, one of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is like, why are there so many churches? Like, why are there so many different, you know, denominations and, and stuff like that? Well, the answer is really in what the New Testament said about false teaching. There, there were going to be people that creep in and come in and teach something different than what Jesus Christ said and his apostles said. And so you get all these different churches that ensue from that. And the apostles tell us how to deal with that and how to navigate whenever someone is is swaying from the truth. And so, like Stephen said, it's, it's really cool that one of the last things we get from Peter is about false teaching. And then at the back end of the book, we'll take a look at Peter discusses the day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And what an appropriate thing to talk about as Peter is nearing the end of his life, recognizing that this is not the end. But That's right. There is, a, there is an ultimate end coming that leads to future glory. Yes. So a couple of themes that you'll see in this letter. One is the theme of remembering or needing a reminder. We'll see it in chapter 1 a bunch of times, chapter verse 12, verse 13, verse 15. And we'll see it come up in chapter 3, verse 2, um, and then uh, a theme of forgetting in verse 5. And another theme that we're going to see throughout is the theme of knowledge, the, the knowledge of God uh, coming to know him. He'll end the letter by saying, grow in grace and knowledge. But um, we're going to see that come up a good bit through the book. And there's going to be kind of this contrast of true knowledge and false knowledge, uh, true prophecy and false prophecy. Uh, And, of course, chapter 2 will be kind of the heart of the book where he has this long warning against false teaching. And like you said, at the end, he talks about the day of the Lord where there are false teachers saying it won't come and it is going to come. And he gives some details about what that's going to be like. So getting into the letter itself, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, um, he doesn't say a lot about his audience. Um, and by the way, it's Simeon Peter at the beginning, which reminds us that Simon, this is the kind of New Testament version, but in the Old Testament, Simeon was the second son of Israel, and um, that's his name, Simeon Peter, um, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um He's writing to Christians. Uh, That doesn't tell us a lot about which Christians, except chapter 3, verse 1, like we mentioned earlier, is where he'll say, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Um, So very likely the same audience as 1 Peter. But he gets right into talking about a concept that I've come to love. In verses 3 and 4, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, there's the knowledge, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This idea of being partakers of the divine nature, being like God, uh, this goes back to Genesis. This goes back to the very reason we were created. We were created in the image of God. And that means a, a lot of things, a lot we can unpack. But I think that Peter captures some of it in chapter 1 here because he talks about if you want to be like God, you have to have God's character. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to go right into this list of, you know, supplement your faith with virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. These qualities. This is part of when you are being transformed to look like this, you are being a partaker mm-hmm. of the divine nature. Yes. And God's restoring what was broken in the fall. He's bringing you back to his image that has been distorted and twisted uh, by sin. It also reminds me of something Paul said in Colossians 3.10, put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created. Mm, Yeah, perfect. And Peter, he likes to have us focus on that aspect of being like God. That that is what our entire life's purpose is about. He did that in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he's calling his readers to holiness um, and he tells them to be obedient children not conformed to the former lusts which were theirs in ignorance but be like the holy one who called you be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written you shall be holy because I am holy (laughs) our entire purpose and mission is focused around being more like God and his son Jesus and so this list that Stephen just took us through is a, is a great starting point. And I would encourage all the listeners, as you read through verses 5 through 11, to take a second and, and maybe rank these in an order so you can figure out which ones you really need to work on the most uh, to, to get a handle on these. Because we are striving to be like our God. That That is our call. Mm-hmm. And one of the just side notes I think is interesting here is in verse 3 when he talks about God called us to his own glory and excellence. That word for excellence in the ESV is the same as the word for virtue mm. a few verses later when he says supplement your faith with virtue, oh, which cool. is like moral excellence, uh, yeah. the Greek word arte. But um, it's interesting thinking about that, that right off the bat he says God is excellent and you need to pursue excellence like like God. So this idea of becoming partakers of the divine nature is so key. And again, he's going to finish his letter talking about grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, Really powerful. So at the next little section, he talks about how he knows he's going to die, verses 12 through 15, and is making every effort so that they can remember. Um, He talks about reminders frequently in that section. And the end of chapter 1 really leads us into chapter 2 because he's going to talk about how the true prophecy from God is not just people making it up. It is based on eyewitness testimony. It is based on people who saw and heard the very things. And Peter actually goes back to the transfiguration and says, I was there. I heard the voice on the mountain. Uh, I saw him. And so we have this confirmed. This is not just hearsay. This isn't just second, third-hand accounts. But these are people who saw Jesus, 
heard from his mouth and now are telling you this is the true prophecy from God. And it is cool to think about Peter pinning this before he dies because I think there's a realization on Peter's part and all the apostles or just eyewitnesses of Jesus' part that it is they understand the reality of hey, the firsthand eyewitnesses we're all dying off but that does not make our testimony useless. Our testimony is still just as good, even if we are dead. And why he's writing it down so it, that they can remember. It, exactly. That's exactly right. And so seeing Peter say this toward the end of his life is really important because he's like, and hey, when I go, these are still true things. And you, you can take it to the bank. You know, we, we saw these things, um, the transfiguration like you're mentioning. And uh, he says in verse 19, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. If there's not a greater summary of what God's word is than that, I, you know, I don't yeah. know what there is. I mean, there's a surety in the prophetic word and the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God that we're reading today. And, and note... He ends chapter 1 talking about true prophecy, the prophetic word being confirmed. And then verse 21, no prophecy was produced by the will of man, but it's from the spirit through man. And then 2.1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And so this is where he gets into really the, the thrust of his argument, his warning against false teachers. And it's like, before I go, you've got to pay attention to this. And so he spends all of chapter 2 talking about the character of false teachers, the tactics of false teachers, and also just not to be surprised that they're false teachers. They, Jesus said this was going to happen. Um, and in the middle of chapter, or toward the beginning of chapter 2, he goes into Old Testament scenarios where God judged the wicked. And he talks about uh, God not sparing angels. He talks about the flood of Noah. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And how all of these are examples of how God's going to judge the wicked. But then, with the Sodom and Gomorrah point, he brings up Lot. Yes. And says, God can rescue the righteous from among the wicked. And the same with Noah and the flood. Mm-hmm. He preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Yes, that's right. So he preserved Noah, he preserved and, Lot. And Noah's, Noah and Lot's example both serves its purpose in the context of false teaching and false prophets, especially Noah because it says he was a preacher of righteousness. I mean, just imagine if you were the only Christian family in the entire world. You listening, your family among the 7 billion people, and we're not sure how many people existed back in the days of Noah. Like you're, you're the only family that's following what God wants. There's a lot of weight on your shoulders at that point. Like, how discouraging would that be? How hard would that be? And you're preaching to no avail, you know. That's how Noah was. And that's the exact situation these brethren feel like they're in as they're surrounded by false teachers and by people who aren't doing the will of God. Um and a similar situation with Lot, exactly like Stephen was saying. And he goes on, um, if I'm jumping ahead, Stephen, you feel free to jump in. But he goes on to describe what I think are characteristics of like false teachers in verses 10 through 16. And I don't know if I had formerly read this list 
in light of that. But we're still in that context of false teachers. He calls them daring, self-willed in verse 10. And I think if I were to pick one word out to kind of describe a bad fruit of a false teacher, self-willed would probably be at the top of that list. Wanting what they want and willing to stop at nothing to get it. Um, He says in verse uh, uh, 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing stable soul, uh, unstable souls, excuse me, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So there is obvious bad fruit of a false teacher that these brethren need to be looking out for. And if you allow them to stick around, it's going to be really bad for the church. Um, they're going to take what they can get from everybody and not in good ways. So this warning that Peter is giving is very serious, and it should make us want to you know, perk up a little bit and look out amongst ourselves and, and look at ourselves to make sure we're not doing these things. That's right. And one of the verses that always has been sobering to me is verse 19, where he says, They promise them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. There's this promise that there's this, Satan doesn't come in with false teaching saying, oh, this is obvious. You know, He doesn't come in with horns and a tail and say, all right, listen to me. He comes in and it sounds so good. This is freedom. This is, you know, you can throw off all those rules and those restrictions and those traditions and, and it sounds so good. But the point that Peter makes is that even while they're promising you freedom, they themselves are slaves to corruption. They're not free themselves. And so, of course, they can't offer you freedom. But that's the way that it's presented. And so we just have to be so careful because Satan is crafty. He knows how to make things sound good and how to make things sound spiritual, how to make them sound religious and good when it's actually selfish and It's interesting to me to see that in this chapter, he doesn't talk a lot about what the false teachers are teaching. And that might be intentional because what they're teaching is going to change a lot. He talks more about the tactics they use, that they're using sensuality. That's a good point. They are using deception. They're using pride. They're just these common elements that it shows you how they get you and what the the specific teaching is going to vary over the, the, the years, but the tactics are going to be the same. And I know you mentioned it earlier, but just bringing it back up, my translation says, this is back in three one that they secretly introduce these destructive doctrines. And there is something about a false teacher that is, you know, on the side whispering, hey, 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 have you ever thought about this? You know, and we're, we're going to talk about a passage in Jude in just a second that discusses the idea of abusing the grace of God. And there are false teachers out there that do that, that say, hey, you know, if if God has just handed you his grace and his, he's merciful, then what's the big deal about being involved in this sin if he's gracious anyways? And just you hear those kinds of teachings being introduced on the side, and before you know it, it's infiltrated the whole group. So yeah, I like the way you put that, that he, he talks about their character more than he talks about their teaching. Um and it, it's happened throughout history. It's happened throughout, and, and just Stephen and I, short you know, time in preaching, and it's crazy that these things are still true today. There, there's no shift in them. Mm-hmm. These are timeless things. 
And what's interesting, though, is that the, at the end of chapter 2, he, he says that these people used to know the Lord. They used to be Christians. And this is a powerful passage in a broader discussion of can someone fall away. Uh, this, I feel like, is one of the strongest passages that shows that, y- yes, it's possible for someone who's truly saved to truly fall away and be lost. In verse 20 of chapter 2, he says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, which is the same thing he said back in chapter 1, verse 4, to the Christians, you've escaped from the corruption in the world. After they've escaped the corruption, the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The sobering passage that, again, is talking about these false teachers, that says they've fallen away. They are headed for destruction. So do not listen to them. Do not be influenced by them. You've got to guard against this because you couldn't be lost also. And so these, this letter from Peter is, is a sobering one. He, he's not, it's not just a feel-good letter as he's about to leave, but it's from the heart. And he says, I don't want you to meet the same fate as these false teachers because they will drag you down to hell is really what he's saying. And you've got to be on guard because it's going to look good. It's going to sound good. It's going to be enticing. But you've got to be strong, stand firm, and hold on to the hope that you have ahead of you. He doesn't just end on a downer, but he talks about the the hope that's coming, the day of the Lord in chapter 3. Yes. And so in in chapter 3, we mentioned this verse earlier, but he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So kind of a, a bridge between the last section and the next one, that these things are a reminder. These are things they've already talked about and preached about, and he's stirring them up to remember these things. And so... Peter gets right into talking about the day of the Lord that's coming. Um, He says in verse 3, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So apparently there's some people, some false teachers, uh, like we've been discussing, that are kind of mocking the idea of the coming of the Lord. You know, this world is the same it has been ever since our fathers died. You know, it, it, where's it going? Which this is about as close as he gets to actually identifying what some of the false teachers are teaching. Is they're teaching, yeah, God's not coming back. Yes, and so Peter will go toe-to-toe with this in verse 5. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. Did they miss that the, there was already a destruction at one point? There was already a judgment that came. And so Peter says in verse 7, But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. 
And the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter is clear. The day of the Lord is coming. Judgment, fire, has been reserved for this earth, and it will all burn. He'll get more into that in the next section. And it's not slowness, it's patience. Right. And every day... wants everyone to be saved. Every day that ticks by, we should wake up with two thoughts. One... This is another day for me to serve the Lord and make sure I'm walking in the way he wants me to because he can come like a thief in the night. But the second thought we need to have is, this is another day God has given me to go snatch other people out of the fire, to to help them understand that the judgment is coming. If your house or apartment was on fire, you would want to tell everyone in that apartment to get out. And this judgment's coming, so we need to be prepared for it. That's right. So as we think about this day of the Lord, he talks about the fact that the the world that we live in, as we know it, is going to be destroyed. Uh, the the one of the tactics of the false teachers is sensuality. Live for this world. Get good things now. And one of the things that Peter reminds him of is, listen, that this world is headed for fire, just like the world of Noah was headed for water. And don't put your focus and your emphasis and your stock in the things of this world because it's coming to an end and he talks about how the the heavenly bodies are going to be burned up and dissolved the earth and the works on it are going to be exposed and in verse 11 he gets to the point since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness that's the application is the world's passing away we have got to be people who are living holy, like because God is holy, like he said in 1 Peter. And um, he says again in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So he gives the application of think about the end before it gets here. When everything is burned up and only we and the Lord remain, <laughs> What's going to be important on that day? That really puts things in perspective. And live today in light of the final day. Because when you think about eternity, when you think about the judgment, when you think about the destruction of the world as we know it, we have to grapple with, okay, what, what's really important then? <laughs> you know, um, There are things that we have to do to get through the day, but it's not our focus. And so I think that Peter does a really good job, and of course, himself being on the edge of eternity, right? I mean, he's about to depart. He's about to go be with the Lord. And so he really wants his audience, these fellow disciples, to really think hard about what's coming in the future and be ready for it. And he mentions that Paul has written about similar things with the wisdom that was given to him in in his letters. And Peter admits in verse 16 that Paul's letters... Are some things in it are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they also do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Even then, apparently, there was one kind of a known thing that Paul's letters were hard to understand. But secondly, that people were distorting what Paul said. But this verse is also important because Peter implies, and it makes it clear, that Paul's letters were scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really cool thing to see. And so even as early as the life of Peter, an apostle, Paul's writings were being recognized as inspired scripture from God. Mm -hmm. And people were distorting what Paul said. And 
you even see that in the letters that Paul is writing, like Second Corinthians and Galatians. People had been twisting what he said. That's right, and they still do today. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and again, these are timeless things. Uh, people have twisted the scriptures for thousands of years. And again, we can twist the scriptures if we're not careful. And so he ends the letter by saying, uh, You therefore, beloved, this is verse 17, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. It's beautiful to see how uh, Peter rounds this out and his farewell address to them is to grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And that's where he wants the glory to go. And that's how Peter lived his life. And it's so beautiful to see after all of the ups and downs that God brought Peter through, these are the words of a dying man who knows he's about to go meet his Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've actually never thought about how crazy that would have been for Peter, who knew the Lord while he was on earth to then anticipate seeing him again mm-hmm. after this life. Uh, it's powerful to think about that. Um, similar to John, who knew him in the flesh and then sees him in the Revelation, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. But Peter, uh, just so cool to think about him as a disciple, as an apostle, as an example to us, and uh, to read this last letter of his. Yes. So we'll briefly do a treatment of the book of Jude. Um, that's over... It's the book that comes right before the book of Revelation. Hey, Jude. It's only one chapter, 25 verses long. So I don't even know if you'd call that one chapter, but it's it's just (laughs) 25 verses. Yep. And Jude is actually the brother of James, who we studied a couple weeks ago. And that is the brother of Jesus Christ. So he would be the half-brother of Jesus, just like James was. Yep. Another about uh, his name is also uh, Judas, right? Which Jude and Judas are the same name. Uh, of course, this isn't the bad Judas, <laughs> um, but his name is mentioned in Mark six three, Matthew thirteen fifty five. James and Judas are both these half brothers of the Lord, children of Joseph and Mary. Yeah, exactly. And so there are some some fun things in Jude, some things that uh, I don't I don't think it's talked about a lot that. I, kind of provokes more questions within us than sometimes we have answers. And that's okay because the Bible has a lot of things like that. But uh, some of the themes in Jude, similar to what we talked about in Second Peter, which is why they mash up well together, is again, false teaching. Uh, verse 4 specifically will say that, um, or excuse me, in verse 3, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. And so, He'll get more into that a little bit later in the letter. Mm-hmm. And this is where, if you take Second Peter 2 and the letter from Jude and just put them next to each other, it's crazy like how similar these two sections of Scripture are. There's just more parallels than we have time to go into in our, the, this podcast episode. But Jude is like a remix of Second Peter 2, and it shouldn't surprise us that there are two sections of Scripture that are very similar. Ephesians and Colossians are very similar. Uh, you know, passages like Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 are very similar, the mountain of the Lord. And if it's all coming from the same Spirit, it shouldn't surprise us that there's repetition <laughs> and that the same Spirit can work through Peter and can work through Jude to say something very similar 
and um, th there's a lot of parallels here. Now, there's going to be some things that are different. Um, again, a lot of Jude, like Second Peter two, is describing the character of the false teachers more than specifics. Um, there's also a section in verses five through seven where he uses Old Testament examples of God's judgment and deliverance. He talks about the Exodus. He talks about the angels, angels again. Yep. And he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah uh -huh. again. And so, again, lots of similarities to kind of his appeal to God's ability to judge. And then he talks about their character in verses 8 and following and describes them in very similar ways. They're unreasoning animals. They're not thinking. And he brings in a few more uh, examples what was it? Uh, Balaam came up in Second Peter, mm -hmm. but Jude brings in Cain and Balaam and Korah, yeah, and talks about all these things. So, again, the strong warning of Jude is the same as Peter. Say, watch out for these guys. False teachers have always been around; they always will be until the Lord comes back, and we have to guard ourselves from their tactics. Be aware of them. Guard against them. And he uses an interesting analogy to describe their their secretness, like Peter had discussed. Uh, in verse 12 of Jude, it says, These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild ways of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So it describes them as being these hidden reefs. And if you can imagine a ship going down the sea and there's this hidden reef underneath and he's sailing along and has no idea and his ship all of a sudden comes to a halt and maybe it you know, punctures a hole in the wood and you know there's a shipwreck because of it. That's kind of what these false teachers and these false brethren are like. They're coming into their love feast, whatever these meals are that these brethren were having, and they're acting like, you know, oh, I'm one of yours, I'm, I'm one of you all. But they're actually, they have these evil motives. They have these, um, they have a heart that's not right with God, and it's going to be to the destruction of the church if they don't spot these people. They are clouds without water. They have an appearance of being a cloud that's going to bring rain and sustenance and good things, but it's just a cloud. You yeah, know? I mean, it goes back to the theme of deception. <laughs> yeah. Like It promises good. They think you think you're getting freedom, but they're actually slaves to corruption. So the same general themes through all of this. And so at the end of the letter, he encourages them to remember the predictions of the apostles. And it was kind of interesting. Actually, He actually quotes Peter um, in verse Eight, uh, verse 18. 18, quotes Second Peter 3, 3. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And he contrasts that with his audience. In verse 20, you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And I really like verse 22 and 23 of this book, where, again, we're trying to keep ourselves, like you mentioned, but because the day of the Lord's coming, we also want to help other people. And he gives three approaches. In verse 22, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. And then verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. And then the third approach, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. It's interesting to see these three approaches. That if we want to save other people, there's some that we need to have mercy on and be patient with them as they're doubting. 
there's some that we need to snatch out of the fire. You don't just say, um, excuse me, I, your hair, I think it might be on fire. Yeah. You know, just, no, like if they're on fire, snatch them out of it. Come in there quickly, get them out. And others, you, there's just caution that's needed. Mercy with fear and make sure that you don't get defiled as you go in to help them. And so lots of uh, different approaches that takes wisdom to know which approach to use. But I like that exhortation at the end of Jude's letter. Yeah. And I love the little statement of praise at the very end. Um, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. So the book of Jude, uh, again, short 25 verses, but packs in a lot of really good, helpful reminders. And so I know we just kind of did a brief six or seven minute treatment of it, but I would encourage you to just read through the verses on your own time and you'll, uh, you'll come away with some good questions as well as some good applications. Lord willing, next week we're going to jump into the letters to uh, letters from John. Excuse me. This is John the Apostle. So we already read his gospel and talked about his gospel account earlier in this season. But now we'll discuss the letters that he writes to Christians, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Yes. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review so we can reach more people. If you'd like to study with us or have Bible questions, uh, there's online Bible studies. We can get together with you locally. Reach out to us, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians.com. Or for more information on group studies and worship, check out capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.